Welcome to another episode of The 1099. As always, I am your host, Joseph Noop, and I hope you are all getting by just fine. Uh, this week's guest is a fantasy writer, authoring Anna Undreaming and the rest of the Medic's Fade trilogy. He's a winner of the Elbow Room Fiction Prize, and he's even written about games on Kotaku and Unwinnable Magazine. But most importantly, he is the lead writer and narrative designer on the new game Cloudpunk, developed by Ion Lands, and which you have heard me gush about endlessly if you follow me on Twitter or listen to last week's review show. Mr. Thomas Welsh, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, no problem. I uh, I am super excited to talk to you. Uh, Cloudpunk, like like I mentioned, is uh, I think this is going to be in my like top ten games of the year. Uh, a large part of that, of course, is because of the the really fun, visually interesting world that uh, developer Ion Lands created. Very pixel blade or voxel blade runner cyberpunk style but i think I, the reason the the game has stuck with me beyond that initial impression is because of this story and a lot of the characters that uh you get to meet along the way and i thought who better to explore some of uh that world building than the the man behind the story himself uh, you were the the lead writer and narrative designer on the game and uh, before we dive into that, though, I would love to know, um, I, have, I have a couple of friends who are uh, like YA authors and uh, getting to learn about the uh, uh, book industry through them has been kind of a fascinating uh, bit of osmosis. But what are your roots in fiction writing? Where did where did you get your start in writing? Well, I um I started with something nice and easy, so I decided to try and write an epic fantasy trilogy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um. Yeah. Just three hundred thousand words of world building and creating a universe and a, a whole magical system and a background with lots of terminology. Um. Funnily enough, in my book, um, in Anna and Dreaming in the Metics Fade trilogy, a noop is a thing. <laughs> um. So it's like there's a lot of kind of terminology, and a noop is a kind of um. Like a kind of groupie, so in in the series, a it's groupie. all about yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's a strange one. So it's all about artists who can change reality with their their art. So if they're you know amazing painters or singers or poets, um, then their art changes the world. And a noop is kind of like someone who hangs around with with um with dreamers, these people who create wonderful works of art and and warp reality. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a uh, if you're a really strange coincidence. It, uh, that that's what this podcast really is: is an excuse <laughs> to hang out with interesting people. Uh, that it's funny. I've I've said this before on the podcast in previous episodes, but uh, my last name Noop is. Uh, I I went to I've I've gone to like five or six game developers conferences in San Francisco, and and usually I'll end up like running into a couple of Dutch game developers, and they're like, "Oh, you pronounce your name Noop? You know it's actually pronounced Nop, right?" And I'm like. <laughs> what have i just been lied to my entire life like my my grandpa literally came over on a boat when he was 18 and uh, uh so it's 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 funny to think that there is someone else out there uh <laughs> who is who is say, says it noop and uh, yeah. is putting that into the world uh that's fascinating uh and yeah i i uh i i uh greatly admire your ability to dive into the deep end with fantasy writing i'm sure <laughs> that um, i'm sure that presented a lot of interesting challenges for you yeah, I mean, I guess in, in the same kind of way um, as you have lots of friends who are authors, um, I have lots of friends who did every other creative field. And I, I always felt a bit like um, 
like the untalented um, second cousin. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of my friends are musicians, so my wife's a musician. Um, a lot of music teachers, a lot of artists, even you know these amazing programmers. I was always a, a really terrible subpar programmer. Um, so yeah, that's that's where the the book series came from. It was about well, what can I do? I wanted to write about all these talented people and how their um, their art changes reality, but in a literal sense instead of a metaphorical sense. Um, and the only thing that I was okay at when it comes to art was was writing. I had to work at it to get where I am now because I wasn't. I've never been naturally good at anything in my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that it was the it was the only route open to me. I mean, I was I was certainly have more chance of being a good writer than I had of um, being an artist or a musician. You know, tone deaf, can't draw to save my life. A stick man would be a struggle for me. But I did always like writing. And to be fair, even back in school, my English teachers always gave me lots of encouragement and they knew that I loved it. So they would tell me to stick with it and give me extra books. And I was just very lazy though. <laughs> um, right. So I, I kind of thought it would happen automatically. You know, I, I thought at one point I'd have a book. I got to mid thirties and realized if I didn't do it, it just wasn't gonna. <laughs> it became <laughs> became more likely that it would never happen than it would happen. Um, so yeah, I decided that better, you know, get stuck in. I, uh, I I think you and I have a bit of that in common. Um, I I was the I would I started writing at like thirteen, and it was obviously very awful, you know, like sci fi fantasy uh, stuff. And I I was also part of a couple of like really bad bad like pop punk bands with my high school friends, and uh, I actually got kicked out of one of them. Uh, because I just, I, I just wasn't like, not, I was, I was a good person. I wasn't like, you know, showing up to practice drunk or something, but I was like, just not good enough. And that was a kind of a wake up call moment. But, uh, so how, tell me how that goes. Was it that kind of sense of, oh, I want to do all these things that I don't think I'm necessarily good at. Uh, was that like one of the primary motivations for saying like, Hey, look, here's a video game project uh that i could possibly do was that how you got involved with cloudpunk or was there a different path to that yeah i mean i guess just first of all just to pick up a point that you made there about um pop punk if you'd been in the uk and you'd been terrible that would be the real kind of qualifying criteria yeah. to get into a, <laughs> into a punk band unfortunately pop punk bands have to have you know good songwriting and good melodies and stuff the worse you are as a musician in a in a punk band in the uk probably the better you'd do um but yeah for for coming on to cloud punk i think i always wanted to to try new things i think it's really exciting to to realize how much you don't know about something and to dive into it you know you can look at games writing from a distance and think you might be able to do it and when you release a game you'll certainly find out from the internet that everyone else thinks that they can do it <laughs> um <laughs> but but it's pretty tough um as as you know if you've done any writing in any field there's a, a learning curve but that's the exciting part for me. You know, I, I loved um, writing the fantasy trilogy and that was pretty much the, the biggest challenge I could think to, to take on um, other than, I suppose, writing, writing literary fiction, which would be a challenge because I'd find it really boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, challenge for me would be trying to write something where there aren't ninjas and robots and all sorts of speculative um, fiction craziness. Um, yeah, so I think with, with Cloudpunk, you know, I'd, I'd played games since I was five years old I'm almost 40 now so I've played games for 35 years pretty much every day of my life I had 
I mean, I'm from a UK background, so my first computer, as I would call it, because we would call it computer games back then, so mm-hmm. the video games um, would have been like a Spectrum, a ZX Spectrum, which was a, a funky little um, personal computer with rubber keys, looked a bit like a big calculator. And I can remember waiting, you know, seven, eight minutes for a game to, to go through the loading screen so that I could play it, you know, running off of audio cassettes. So I've been doing this for a long time. Obviously, I love games. <laughs> um, so at some point, you know, if you're if you're interested in writing and you love something, then you look for an avenue into it, don't you? You just like you have to take a shot at it. Um, yeah, and I ended up I ended up on Cloudpunk. Was there a was there a core part of the Cloudpunk story that like had been kind of sitting in your brain for a while? Like you're like. That is just like, oh, that is a story I really want some sort of platform to tell. Or was it more like uh, you, you get approached for the project and then you kind of start thinking, well, okay, uh, so here's the basic tenets I have to work with and let, let me make something new and fresh. Well, I think um, what was exciting was that I was just given a beautiful game engine in a world with no story. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very inviting as a project for a writer. You know, um, Marco, the, the um, head of the studio, had this wonderful world and he just said i need to fill it with a story background lore history all these fun things for a writer to do but when it came to the creative process of of filling that story with ideas i don't think that the story was shaped by what i wanted to do in a cyberpunk world but by what we wanted to avoid so you know cyberpunk's very tropey and people love cyberpunk and and so die but only particular aspects of it and we had this real kind of subtractive approach to, to storytelling. We just set out all the things we did not want to do. And that might find that might sound like it constrains your creativity, but it absolutely doesn't. As you start stripping away all these kind of first ideas that you have for a cyberpunk story, you know, a Deckard style, um, bounty hunter kind of character, a white guy with a gun, middle-aged, you know, gruff, um, best at what he does. We were like, absolutely none of that. So we just shifted all that aside. And as you start discarding those really obvious kind of first instinct ideas, you start thinking, well, what's left? And it, it leaves all these little hooks for you to hang story ideas off of. You know, like creativity is typically spurred on, for me at least, by constraints. It's a bit like asking someone what their favorite song is. You know, if I was to say to you just now, mm-hmm. what's your what's your favorite song? you'd probably have some kind of, if you're anything like me, a cold existential dread will come down as you think I don't want to say the yeah. wrong thing. And you're like, do you mean the, my favourite song that I'm listening to now? My favourite pop punk song? Um, absolutely open-ended creativity is the same. It's a big white empty page. And that can be good for some people. But I think for me and for a lot of people, you know, I do a lot of writing workshops and stuff. A lot of people really feel the, the benefit of, just some some constraints to to get you started that's why game jams have a theme right to spark an initial idea um so we, we just looked at cyberpunk and we said we don't want to have a a male character as the lead i mean for every character i would always think i would never default to a white middle-aged male just for every character in the story we would just say what could they be what would be the most interesting kind of diverse cast we could have in the game and never default to that um archetype but also, you know, can we just completely avoid um, shooting? Uh, no violence. I, I think there's barely a reference to guns in the game. Um, you'll certainly not see any. There's maybe some kind of um, storylines that mention them, but it's not a part of 
um, Rania's experience in in her first shift working for Cloudpunk. You know, it's not part of the game world we were interested in exploring. You know, yeah, I think you and I have that in common too. Where I, uh, I, I am a creative person who absolutely cannot work with a a blank canvas most of the time. Um, I actually, I start, I start, I downloaded Magica Voxel, this free uh, voxel art software, just the other day, and partially because of Cloudpunk, but also because of like a, a longstanding uh, love of uh, voxel art that you see, you know, online and in magazines and such. I started creating some like super basic stuff and like learning the software, and I they give you a literally like a blank cube to work with uh, for like a new file, and I was like, well, I I, I have no idea like what I want to do. So I had to like Google like what, okay, what is it? What does a voxel cat look like? You know, and like, <laughs> let, let me try to make my version of that now that I have like a framework. And yeah, I think um, it, it's funny to hear you say um, that you went into cloud punk with uh, uh, such a like cognizance uh, awareness of like th- those tropes of cyberpunk stories. Uh, yeah. The, the Deckard like bounty hunter with the gun character, um, the very like neo noir elements, because uh, I think that 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 is yeah that is a uh, cloud punk as a story feels like yeah it engages on a very different level of like here's this woman from some unnamed eastern peninsula, uh, a woman of color you know and uh, she she is exploring this brand new city and getting to she's she's of course our lens through the world. Uh, Aside from those um, less, uh, you know, aside from those more tired tropes, what do you think are like the core tenets of cyberpunk stories? Because like Cloudpunk itself still does very much fit in a cyberpunk mold. And a lot of that is like the visual elements, but there are a lot of the um, the like narrative elements uh, that are core to cyberpunk, like class uh, schisms and uh the use of technology the use of artificial intelligence the nature of ai uh what do you think are like the core tenets of cyberpunk stories that keep them really interesting even though that those kinds of worlds are really well trodden ground i guess for me my my inspiration would come from maybe a bit more literature than than movies i mean i like blade runner as much as anyone else um Mm -hmm. But I, I was a big fan of Philip K. Dick when I was growing up. So, you know, books like Phallus and Ubik and, um, you know, the original Dandroid Stream of Electric Sheep, I guess it's, it's still Blade Runner, right? But <laughs> but it's, it's a very different story. Um, there's much more kind of bending of reality in those stories. There's definitely the kind of social class element, um, which is important. There's much more kind of playfulness around the ideas of the artificial intelligence. Um, people really fasten on a particular kind of offhand piece of dialogue in um, Cloudpunk, which was one of those ones where I felt like I was writing it. It was just kind of this meandering back and forth, and it was Camus trying to figure out what he was. So mm. um, Cam- Camus is your, your dog sidekick whose um, personality has been uploaded to your your hover your flying car so he's a dog car <laughs> as he says at one <laughs> point um and there's this conversation between rani and camus which i guess encapsulates a lot of the things that i'm most interested in, in in cyberpunk and it's it's a bit i guess it's like very basic existentialism because i'm not an existentialist expert um 
by a long shot. <laughs> um, but it's this idea of Cam is asking if he's not a dog anymore, if he's a car, then then what does it mean to even call himself a dog? Is it the way that he thinks? You know, he tries to bark. And I, I don't know if you've noticed this part, <laughs> but the lights flash on and off in the hover at this part. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and he's trying to figure out like that's that's what happens, and he just says that's weird, and and Rania kind of agrees that is weird, um, and and like that's a really thorny conversation for me to work my way through because like pet ownership is weird in its own way, especially for pets get more intelligent and can kind of interact with us and not that level. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things about what what role or automata and AI play in the, the society of Novalis. So they're emancipated to some degree, but it's never entirely clear. And, and some other encounters later on bring up the kind of levels of prejudice and um, kind of complexity and bureaucracy that exists around the rights of androids and automata. And I should say that like Cloudpunk, one of the things that we wanted to, to kind of focus on in that story as well is that we didn't want to just write um, discrimination against the AI or or uh, artificial intelligence or or robots is just a metaphor for racism or mm. misogyny or anything because there's totally racism and misogyny and all those really terrible things in Navalis too, as there will be in any future world that that we come to. It's a constant struggle to battle against those things. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did I ramble there a little? <laughs> No, no, r- rambles are good in a podcast. Uh, it is, yeah, I, I, I think of, um, uh, for a while now I've had uh, Detroit Beyond Human, or is it Detroit Become, it's Detroit Become Human, I think, the uh, yeah. the, the latest uh, uh, game from, oh, I've, I've suddenly forgotten, but the, the team that made, you know, Fahrenheit. Uh, yeah, David, David Cage and stuff. David Cage, yeah. And um, the... I, I've yet to dig into that game, so I'll, I'll try to not be like too unfair to it. But to, to me, like a lot of the criticism I've seen of that game has been that it really, really falls into a lot of those uh, tired tropes uh, and also kind of like adds adds an extra layer of insult to them by saying like, well, you know, uh, uh, we have an underground railroad for the androids or like a black character says to an android, you know, what? Uh, there was once a time where my people were oppressed too. And it's like, Oh <laughs> boy, you, you, you could not have been more like, like unnecessarily blunt and like tasteless about this. But that's, I think that is uh, a part of why Cloudpunk sticks with me is because there are these little, like when Camus has that conversation, Camus is, I think easily my favorite character in the whole game. It's it, he has a very Doug from up the the you know Doug the Doug the talking dog, uh, kind of his his dog id coming through that artificial intelligence. Uh, the moments where, like, yeah, is like you know, is it right that like Rania puts this dog companion of hers inside a car and like he's starting to feel the the sense of displacements or like he doesn't feel like he's in the right body and they even have a it's not too much of a spoiler to say but i think they have a a conversation later where he's like you know hey if i wasn't this like would we still be friends and that's like oh man like what if my dog could ask me uh you know like what is actually the nature of our friendship is it just because you bought me off of a store shelf or is it because like you actually uh like care for me like or am i programmed to care about you kind of thing and i i think it it resolves in a a meaningful enough way i won't spoil but 
hearing that was kind of like, wow, I this this what could have been a one dimensional joke about like, hey, my dog is my AI and like he's here to crack uh, Doug from up jokes uh, suddenly becomes so much more. And I think I really appreciated that. Uh, I, I I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. No, I, I think that's a really good point. I think, I guess, to, to kind of try and circle back to answer your initial question about w- what I'm hoping to explore in, in the cyberpunk genre is you kind of fire a rocket off to the moon, right? So you fly really far away from the, the terrestrial concerns of, of what we're facing every day, living in a, a big city, as many of us are. Um maybe sometimes literally to the moon. But then you, you you kind of fly back at a funny angle and you come back and you hit all those issues. So like the issues of, of pet ownership, of what it means for Camus to be a dog, to still be your friend. It's interesting that you say that that conversation resolved because I was really in two minds when I was writing it. I felt like it resolved to an extent where both people were happy with a kind of status quo that like they would maybe both think about, you know, this is the kind mm-hmm. of thing that, that Rania would, uh, in my mind, would kind of think, was I right about that? You know, there's a lot of self-justification going. And I think, yeah. like, it's great that you say that um, Camus kind of exists like an id, um, because that's absolutely how he he behaves in the story. He's often a kind of conscience for Rania, who's much more guarded. There's a lot of benefit for a writer to have a character who just says, exactly what someone's thinking especially when they don't want to admit to themselves what they're thinking um Mm -hmm. so i think that's that's where a lot of the fun comes from those interactions camus just says exactly what what's true you know he's like a hundred percent honest and sometimes that's just very painful for someone living in a, a really difficult um city like rania is it's it's kind of a, a trope itself with um you see ai characters in cyberpunk or just sci-fi stories in general uh like c3po is you know the, he'll he'll tell you the odds of like escaping from the death star and really that's more just because he's socially awkward and like he's unable to read the room whereas camus is more like a child like you know kids say the darndest things as as the the show and saying goes and uh that that when when you don't have a like mental concept of what the uh uh impact of your words can be and like what the broader implications of the world around you means like yeah you're gonna say some like pretty blunt but still true things which i think is why uh yeah camus really lands as a character uh i i should ask too considering your your background in fiction writing there. Uh, what do you think are like the the primary, uh, I guess, like differences between world building in a sci-fi universe versus a like a, a more uh, traditional, like I guess, Western fantasy uh, universe? So I guess for for Metic Fade, um, it's funny. It's hard to categorize it sometimes. Maybe it's not hard for other people. It's hard for me. <laughs> um, but it's, it's kind of spoken about as urban fantasy. So this idea of um, fantasy in the real world. So it's kind of fantastical reality bending worlds breaking in on, on our reality because um, Anna does just live in our world, albeit a version of our world where the rules of reality can be changed by these crazy artists um, who are, who are kind of like wizards or magicians. Um I think sci-fi seems to come really easily to me. I don't know why. Maybe it's a lot of sci-fi books I read when I was growing up. Um, 
But if I try and write short stories, they always come out as sci-fi. They always feel like episodes of Black Mirror, which is mm-hmm. both a good and a bad thing. I think um, someone once described Black Mirror, this is not mine, so I'm not taking any credit for it, but someone once described Black Mirror as, what if your mobile phone but too much? <laughs> <laughs> which is just perfect. And to be honest, although I do really like those episodes of that TV show, some more than others, obviously. Um, we did try and stray away from that and the kind of world building that we were doing in in Novalis and in Cloudpunk 2. We had this idea that we didn't want to create a traditional cyberpunk dystopia. We wanted Novalis to be wondrous um, because that was the feeling that I got when I played the game at first, you know, flying around in the car. Um, it's a lot of people's fantasies to, to have this kind of Blade Runner, um, City, Neon, beautiful synthy music flying around um and that's not really associated with joy in Blade Runner it's associated with griminess and kind of noir fiction and and we just wanted to have an element of, of almost like quirk in there we wanted funny characters and light and life and energy and illegal jazz but they're still jazz because you know life finds a way <laughs> <laughs> It's um uh the, the it's interesting you say Black Mirror too because like I I've I've watched uh maybe like six episodes uh some of the usuals you know the the more popular ones um and I it's funny you say that yeah the what if Black Mirror's conceit really seems to come down to what if this seemingly innocuous thing but corrupted when really in good science fiction, I feel like you can tell a story about something that's already been corrupted. You know, a a city is a corrupt, dangerous thing. There's beauty in it. Uh, There's, there's plenty of beauty and, and warmth in it, but there's always been a lot of cold and corruption in it too, because of the, the nature of humanity and social structures and all that. But um that uh, I, I I think you you touch upon a, a point too. It's funny that Anna Undreaming is this almost like Neil Gaiman esque uh, exploration of dream states because Cloudpunk itself, the world of Nivalis, often feels like this dream state itself, uh, and a part of that is the visual design, the like the sense of feeling really small amidst all these skyscrapers and neon signs and lost among the the crowd of people with this like you know far uh, distant camera shot uh but the writing there is there too and i wonder if uh uh how much how much of that like dream state in this did you try to incorporate in the story for cloudpunk because it does feel like there are a lot of times where either through the writing or some of the general uh, overall like narrative design there is this sense of like I either can't believe what I'm seeing or or this all feels like a like a dream in a way. I think it's like it's an area of fiction that I'm really interested in. I've never really associated it much with with what's happening in Cloudpunk. I've always felt like the story there was pretty literal, although we were careful about not being too explicit about things. So um, you know, I I fairly recently read uh sorry, watched um Twin Peaks, which is something that I just missed out on for for many many years despite thinking that looks like my kind of thing and then after i watched it you know i was straight away like i have to watch everything by david lynch i have to watch all his interviews you know you just go through that kind of mini obsession and that dreaminess was something that i I really i was interested in but i never felt like it particularly came into my my writing and 
um, in cloud punk. Of course, you're you're influenced in all sorts of ways that you you're not aware of. I do remember having discussions with um with Marco, the studio lead, about you know inspirations and and movies that we liked, and he would always say yes, yes, that sounds good. You know, we would talk about story ideas, and I would give him some directions I was going in he'd almost always be positive but he would occasionally say not like um I can't remember which movie it was it was one of the David Lynch movies that he really disliked I'm trying to think <laughs> what it wasn't it wasn't Lost Highway and it wasn't um it wasn't Mulholland Drive whichever one's the most obtuse <laughs> that can still be difficult to pick out in David Lynch's filmography yeah. yeah he'd watch that and he'd, he'd got really annoyed with it like just it doesn't make any sense so he would always caution me to avoid that um but yeah yeah I think maybe the the dreaminess for me comes through in the, the ambience of the city um and maybe some of the the interactions I guess with the characters Rania often can't quite believe what people are saying to her um mm. And and I guess that maybe would be the most yeah one of those strange dream conversations where things don't quite make sense. That's such a um, uh, a, a like you you see that a lot in video games where the the player character is often the straight man, uh, which is is pretty pretty sensible because of course the the player themselves is coming into this new world and doesn't know anything about it yet. Uh, but you see that in stuff like like even Metal Gear Solid uh, itself, a very you know, sci-fi story. Uh, uh, Solid Snake is infamous for like basically just repeating Metal Gear. Like <laughs> yeah. he, he repeats everything with a with a question mark, kind of like a Valley Girl. Like it ends everything with a question mark. Uh, but uh, that I think for me, a lot of the dream feel the dreamy feeling of cloud punk kind of comes from it's not too much of a spoiler to say that uh at least at one point in the game uh, well the the a lot of the characters reflect on how the city is kind of beginning to fall apart at the seams um and at, at first you're kind of wondering like oh is that you know just a, a commentary on how you know uh the the poor get poorer and the rich get richer kind of dynamics but literally you witness a skyscraper like fall out of the sky and kind of tumble into another building, uh, you know, a, a quarter mile in the distance kind of thing. And that was kind of this, this aha moment where like the dream, the dreamy feeling was beginning to translate into reality of like the world, the world is crumbling around me, except now it literally is. And, uh, people comment on it in a dreamy way too, of like, Oh yeah, the driver before you was involved in, uh, the sector, you know, 14 B crash or whatever. Uh, and, and like that, it's a damn shame that we lost him, but, uh, people go on with their lives and it's like, oh man, that's, uh, that, that was kind of what stuck to me, I think. Yeah. I think, do you know, thinking about that now, obviously everything's a little bit different since when I wrote, um, cloud punk at first, you know, the script was finished before the whole situation we're in with, with lockdowns and pandemics all over the world yeah. right now. And it, it's funny. I always feel like people react in a very mundane way to, to tragedy, at least initially, um, there aren't a lot of histrionics that I've experienced in any of the really terrible things that I've seen in my life. You know, people don't tend to go crazy and react like they do in movies and people get used to really terrible situations really fast. I think that's a scary thing and it's meant to be unnerving in Nivalis. You know, people don't, people don't, people aren't trying to fix it anymore. They've just accepted it. And that's, 
certainly mirrored <laughs> with what's happening <laughs> in the world right now. Um, reports in the news of how many people are are dying and the um, kind of the way that it's responded to, both by us as a society, and a sometimes quite dishearteningly like what can we do kind of way is is very scary and that's what it's supposed to be in cloud punk i think it's supposed to be a scary thing we we see i guess i don't know if you met the engineer character yeah but, um he, he's one of the few people that's trying to make things better and he's really he's really tired he's just so tired um because i think he's seen all his colleagues try to make things better, but Nivalis is built on top of broken systems on top of broken systems. Patches on patches, as, as um, one important character says at one point. Um, mm-hmm. And an engineer, he really thinks he's got it. He really thinks he's got, you know, some solutions. And he thinks everyone else is just superstitious and all his um, engineer friends have just kind of lost themselves to ritual and to, and to kind of habit. And he thinks there's a kind of scientific explanation. And you see him kind of lose hope as it goes on. He decides to become a painter and go off and do something creative, which is a worthy thing in itself. But it is is a scary thing. And that collapsing into the ocean of the buildings, the way that people talk about whole districts falling into the sea, um, that's the scary evil that I see in the world. And I think that Rania does as well as an outsider coming to the city. And hopefully the player does too. It's kind of funny, um, but it's funny in a tragic way that everybody just kind of walks around and continues with their their day um that's the scary thing just that cynicism and apathy around it and um kind of disaster and and loss of life becoming mundane uh so that's that's the part that scares me i guess about yeah Navalis and you know earth <laughs> <laughs> i i think like cyberpunk is a really strong setting for that kind of observation right because you're you're often dealing with these cities where you know one apartment building can hold 20,000 people or something and uh the streets are filled with people walking around and there's there's just so much life going around you that if you lose a uh a a chunk of it uh through like one of these you know supposed accidents uh it's the old saying you know uh, uh one death is a tragedy a million is a statistic and uh yeah i think that's why you see that works a lot better in science fiction stories where just the, the usually the population of a world is way bigger than a fantasy world because we've we've as a humanity propagated uh far far more uh have you ever played um before we jump into another uh couple of questions about like characters and world building i got to ask have you ever played uh bloodborne yeah yeah i love i'm a souls like fun i guess you would say so yeah i'm uh i i've only played bloodborne and then sekiro and i've yet to dive into dark souls but i think the i i actually just started um uh paying for the patreon for Duckfeed tv who does a entire uh, podcast series about dark souls and bloodborne and breaking down every section and then very often like uh breaking down the the overall themes of the story and uh to me the the there's that moment in bloodborne sorry for spoilers for a 2014 game but uh there's that moment in bloodborne where you you kill rom the vacuous spider and suddenly your brain is kind of made aware of actually how 
uh, much eldritch, you know, Cthulhu-esque horror there is around the world. And suddenly you see all these giant Cthulhu monsters climbing on top of buildings that you like, they've always been there. They've always been there, uh, but you just couldn't see them because you didn't have the level of like eldritch insight into that. And there's the implication that like, that's what's causing everyone to go nuts. And uh, the any characters that you didn't like finish their quest line before that, they end up going crazy and you can't really interact with them after that. And to me, I kind of wonder, like, I feel like I... I think cyberpunk stuff appeals to me more because it, it engages at least on some level with, with the reality, whereas Eldritch stuff, it's cool and like, it's fun to explore and it, it has a lot of merit, but I think it would be way more interesting to see how people just went about their life while these Eldritch horrors like loomed over them rather than going insane. Uh, d- d- does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, so I think the director that did the newer Hollywood Godzilla movie, it's a Gareth Edwards. I think he did a film called Monsters. Yeah. Um, I think that's right. Um, and that was very much about like how there's giant monsters in the world, but everybody just gets on with their life because it just becomes part of you know people's routine. It becomes like a you know a, a bad storm or weather or something. It's just something that kind of comes in and out of people's lives. Um, there's definitely a feeling of that. You know, I live in the UK, so we're used to. The, the main thing that we talk about is the weather, whether it's going to rain this day, just because it's so random. Um, and that randomness kind of evokes in people all sorts of ritual and superstition. And I think that's a big part of Novalis as well. People have all sorts of ideas about what's really going on, but I don't think anyone's really got the full story. And I, I don't feel like Rania does by the end of the game either. I don't want to spoil anything there, but I still feel like there's just layers and and no one has the the full story of exactly what's happening in the city. There's um a historian that you meet at one point, um, and he kind of rants a little bit. But he has this idea that there's throughout history been this recurrent idea that we should delete all our history. So um he he kind of talks about how if there's an idea and there's enough time, eventually people will put that idea into practice. So the idea that we would at some point destroy all of our history and make it impossible to know our history by obfuscating, you know, fossils and records and stuff, that will become a, a certainty. And he thinks this has happened five or six times throughout throughout history. But of course it would be impossible to, to know how many times it had happened. And that's a big part of the lore of Novalis, I think. People are maybe grasping it much like in Bloodborne, they're trying to get some insight, some some knowledge of what's come before, why they're in this situation, but it's just never going to be possible for them to do so. Mm-hmm. it's it's you're fighting against uh nature there at that point and you are you are uh a, a lone tree in the storm of that i think yeah i uh let's switch gears a little bit i want to talk about one of my favorite characters in the entire game um huxley uh who is i i talked a little bit about him uh during last week's review show where we reviewed final fantasy 7 gears tactics and cloud punk and uh i i compared him a little bit to uh nick the android detective or the like i think i think android is the word i'm looking for there the robot detective from fallout 4 and except huxley even though he's got that kind of like very uh classical noir uh flavor to him being a like private eye uh trying to rescue uh someone in this world 
the writing on him is fascinating because he he the implication being that he is a uh, a bit of a broken robot who uh, is narrating everything like an inner monologue from a detective story. So uh, for folks who didn't listen to last week's show, an, an example would be Rania comes to pick him up in her car and is like, hey, you you called me. What do you want? And Huxley's like, I could tell the dame was on to me. I I knew I had to ice the situation if I wanted to uh, save the girl. And it's like, oh, wow. OK. And I, I thought I w- at first I was like, oh, could will this hold up for as long as I know this character? And like, it, it really does. So I, I want to ask you, like, how you approached writing that character and I guess what kinds of themes or uh, uh, characterization you really wanted to explore with such a unique guy like Huxley? I think with a character like Huxley, there's not there are not many characters that come along like that where you have so much fun, but the fun translates to the the reader or the player in this case. Often when it's that much fun, you're just messing about, you know? Like it's yeah. obvious it's obviously great fun. I mean, whenever you were talking to me there, you made your own Huxley line, right? You you thought about how you would speak. It's in, it's internalized for you. Everyone that plays Cloud Punk through has their own Huxley in their head afterwards. You know, I see so many like reviews that kind of use his his patois, his, his kind of speech pattern, and the the title for the review, or like you know, people wanting to know more about him, or you know, saying that he's their favorite character. They'll write something like him. So I was very cautious when I was writing it that this is so much fun that it must be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can I stick with this? And there was a degree of like, I need to convince people that this is, um, this is going to work. So, so Marco, the studio lead again, wasn't too sure about Huxley at first. I don't think anyone's too sure about him the first time they meet him. I mean, you weren't, and certainly that's what I hear. And yeah, and yeah. to be fair, some people will never want him because he's a, a very distinctive style of character. But, but what happens is whenever you've got that, you've got all these little uh, opportunities for, characterization and emotional storytelling through breaking those patterns so you give him very strict rules about how he can talk and he can't kind of talk in anything but the um kind of third person way that he's he's talking about himself he's always referring to himself and certain tropes have got to come up over and over again but he slips you know and the way that he slips tells a lot about if he's upset or if he really cares about something um and of course like as soon as you introduce three characters so you have um rania kind of straight character like you said rania has to be a foil for everyone to to bounce off um so she has half the lines in the game she has to be the uh way in for the player she has to be convincing in her reactions she has to not overshadow the strange interesting characters that you meet um so the voice actor for for um rania has the hardest job in the game i think so andrea is the voice actor and she was amazing um but when you've got that kind of Kind of a little bit cynical, a little bit sarky, grounded, relatable main character. And then you've got a dog that just says whatever he's thinking and an extremely irritating, kind of eventually maybe lovable um, private detective, as we describe Huxley, Nivalis's best, cheapest private detective. Um, (laughs) I mean, like, if you have those three characters, I think I could give them to any half-decent writer and they could write a funny scene. You know, you've got all the tools. You've got a, a, a little toolbox with bits and pieces that you can put together in funny ways there straight away. Um, so, yeah. And and again, I think the, the real secret to making 
Camus, ah, sorry, Huxley work was those slips, those times when he breaks out of his normal speech pattern or when he kind of bends the rules um, because that's when you get to to see a bit more of his characterization, his personality, not just the front that he puts up. And it's a front that's imposed on him, not one that he chooses for himself. Yeah, I uh, it, it almost feels like that that trio of characters, um, you know, when they're when they're going about their business in the game uh, can kind of almost feel like a improv uh, comedy group of like, you know, like the you know, they, they take suggestions from the crowd. and They're like, we need oh a, a new kid in town. We need a a talking dog and we need a like grizzled uh, P.I. It's like, OK, go. And you, yeah, it, it feels like one of those kinds of uh, very easy comical setups that just gives you a lot of material to work with. Yeah. And the three uh, walk into a jazz bar, you know, it's like it's exactly. like a setup for a joke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's great. I think in the in the time we have left here. I think my biggest question I've got for you left is really so lead, your lead writer and your narrative designer on cloud punk, which I, I assume comes with a, a pretty broad spectrum of responsibility for making sure that, you know, this story uh, flows and works well. And I think I, I'm cribbing uh, one minor criticism of the game from uh, the waypoint crew over at vice.com uh, who I, I, I listen to their show almost religiously and, uh, Austin Walker and uh, uh, Rob, uh, I forget Rob's last name. They, they Zachney. Name. Rob <laughs> Zachney. Zachney. I'm a massive they, Waypoint fan as well. So oh, like when they, when they opened the show with Cloud Punk, I was like, oh man, yeah, it was Hell very yeah. exciting. Yeah. I, uh, they had the, the one criticism that like, um, they, they brought up, there's a a side story with, uh, you, you get this piece of a car for a like aging race car driver, uh, who's kind of like operating on like the, the gray line of, of legality in the city. It kind of feels like underground racing, but like, uh, you, you go and deliver this to him and you're there's a few points in the game where you're presented with the classic video game you know do you do this or do, do you do that kind of uh fork in the road decision making and i i noticed what i think uh, austin and rob also noticed which is that there's a couple of times in the game where you are presented with a choice and either the lead up to like, well, if you do this, this will happen. And if you do this, then that'll happen. And for me, it wasn't so much that race car driver. It was a moment where you're able, without spoiling it, you're able to um, like rewrite the AI of a group of people. And I, I sat there and I kind of stewed over this, the decision for a little bit. So, you know, like I, I was at least invested in it. Uh, but after I made my decision, it was actually kind of like the a, a, a very different thing. It kind of felt like I had, I had made the other decision, even though I knew I had made this decision. And I just wonder, like, as a narrative designer, like, how do you approach uh, giving players choices like that and uh, uh, making sure that, you know, you're communicating like this, this is why this happened. And I guess because of those uh, uh, criticisms, have you like learned have you have you been reflecting on any lessons learned as a result of that process uh that you might take into a future game yeah absolutely i mean i guess for the choices that you make in the game what we were keen to do is make them kind of opaque and feel sometimes a little bit i hesitate to say cruel but certainly arbitrary um 
and that's because we we certainly and again this this links back to what i said at the start about having this kind of subtractive approach to storytelling we, we didn't want positive and negative mass effect style choices the good one and the bad one um and we did want a bit of the um precociousness of just nivalis to shine through in the choices that you made we also didn't want to come to the back half of the game and have lots of choices that rania had made that weren't in the hands of the player at all start to play out because there's a a kind of disempowerment from that and you know, there's there's no game in the world that lets you do everything that you want to do, right? There's, mm-hmm. It's not possible to design a game like that. Maybe never will be. Um, but there's also, you know, no way that we wanted to create a game that, that had no choices in it. What's been great for me is watching streamers play the game. You know, I've written books before I've written a game. Um, and when you write a book, what happens is, you kind of read some Amazon reviews and those are nice. Some people put reviews in their blog. Maybe someone tells you that they, they really love this character. They send you a message and that's cool. Um, but what you don't get to do is sit over someone's shoulder, see them emotionally react. To it. I mean, you could, yeah. but it would be weird. <laughs> I mean, even <laughs> I think as writers, there's this whole thing where like, you know, most of your friends and family don't read your book. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It's just it's yeah, not yeah. going to be everyone's <laughs> cup of tea. So you, you I would find it incredibly rude to ask someone, you know, like my auntie, did you read my book yet? So I wouldn't do that. But I might subtly bring it up in such a way that would give her an opportunity to see whether she liked a scene or a, or a character or something. It's totally different way with a game because you go on Twitch, you log in and you see someone in front of an audience of sometimes thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people experience the art that you created and make the choices that you set out for them. And there is nothing like that in any other art form, I don't think. Maybe like, you know, it's not the same as getting a round of applause at the end of a a gig or something like that, but Mm -hmm. it's in the same kind of ballpark. You see for sure people not liking your game and, and, you know, having problems with some, some particular aspects of it. But what I got to see with watching Twitch streams was the choices that people really connected with and the ones that they agonized over, and the ones that they kind of just pushed through. What we tried to do, and I think I got better at this as I was writing my way through the script, is tried to make these uh, choices that you make about what you think about right and wrong, not necessarily what Rania thinks or what's going to get you the extra credits in the game. Um, so the, the really basic one, which I wasn't sure was going to work that well, um, but kind of did and and was great to watch streamers um take part in was the one where you're in the quarantine zone and you have to choose which people to save Mm. so this is the equivalent uh that kind of team building exercise you sometimes get where you're like you know there's six of you in a hot air balloon but it can only support um five so who are you going to throw out and you have to choose you know like makeup characters so i'm a doctor you know you can't throw me out i could treat the sick people i'm a hot air engineer hot, hot air balloon engineer i'm the only one that knows how to <laughs> land it um yeah. so that that whole quarantine scenario was the one that had this massive debate with streamers with their community um you could see like the the kind of mental gymnastics that people went through and you know i don't want to like congratulate myself or give myself too many pats on the back because there's absolutely parts of the game that i would improve and there's so many legitimate criticisms as well but what I liked about that is that I tried to layer in for each choice that you made with the character, there would be the obvious feeling that you would have, 
would be the first layer. The second layer would be this kind of arbitrary restriction that's put on you that you're supposed to try and save some people that have some money so they can pay you back for saving them. And then there would be this third layer where like if people really thought about what the person just said to them, there was quite a good reason either to not save them or to save them there as well. So, you know, there's the likable character. You want to save him, um, but he doesn't have much money. But then there's maybe a third aspect for you to kind of balance up there. So yeah, maybe maybe in future I would have more choices that that balance that kind of complexity. I think that was the most complex one, and it was the one that I thought the most about, and I think it's one of the more successful ones in it. Um, so yeah, I think that's the lesson for me. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, it, it, and interesting you bring up that one because I think that was where that was the point in the game where one I was be- I was beginning to be surprised at how uh, uh, lengthy I, I thought the game would be much shorter than it was and I was really pleasantly surprised by uh, how extensive the story ended up becoming and I think that was the point where I um, I, I really yeah I, I engaged with all three of those levels and said well I'm going to save this doctor and I'm going to save this these two people I don't really like but I know <laughs> I, I know for the better outcome of. Uh, 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 this this world uh, or cloud punks benefit i'm gonna rescue these two people i don't care for that much and i i, I think that that there's a there's a lot of opportunities for uh great storytelling when you begin to incorporate those layers but did you save are... sorry i was just going no, to go... ask you did you can i guess who you saved yeah by all means okay so i think you saved uh mrs octavius butler yep and i think so you said two difficult people i think you saved the doctor I say, yeah, the uh, yeah, the black woman, the doctor, yeah. Oh, sorry, the the third one then is the scientist. Oh, uh, no, I uh, so I saved Octavia Butler. I saved the doctor lady who's at the like north end of that street. Yeah, Doctor Achua. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then I actually I saved the asshole like son of a rich guy. Oh uh, no! <laughs> uh, yeah, I I I was like, oh, I really really hate you, but you seem like you have money. He does. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's how that played out. But uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer. So let's just wrap up here. And uh, Thomas, Thomas Welsh, where can people find your work if they want to keep an eye on you and any future projects you are doing? So on Twitter, I'm Cam Down Tom. On most social media, actually, I'm Cam Down Tom. Um, my blog is camdowntom.com and I have all my written work on there kind of linked so you can buy my book on Amazon or somewhere that's not evil, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Cloud Punk's on Steam. Um, Cloud Punk's coming on consoles this year as well. We don't have, like, a specific release date, but obviously, like, you know, anyone who's 40, like me, and grew up with video games, is super excited about their game coming out on a Nintendo console. So Switch release is exciting for me. Exactly. And uh, it's worth mentioning uh, the the review episode. I already got uh, Mr. John uh, Phipps, uh, friends. He says he's going to buy it on Nintendo Switch. And actually, while we were recording the episode, uh, the other friend on the show, Mr. Jake Tucker, said, oh, yeah, I've, I've now bought it on Steam and I'm going to download it as soon as we're, uh, we're done recording. And he <laughs> went and did just that. So uh, I'm here to spread the good word of Cloudpunk for you. But thank you so much for coming on the show. This has actually been like a really, really fascinating talk. I uh, uh, I really appreciate all your insight as an author and a and a writer, and uh, it is it has been it has helped me it has helped enrich an already very rich experience for me. Thank you so much for having me. That's that's so nice to hear. Yeah, I had I had yeah. a lot of fun.
<laughs> and folks, you can find a new episode of the 1099 podcast every week here on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and any other podcast platform of choice. Uh, feel free to leave a review of the show that really helps us out, lets us climb those charts, uh, share the show around on social media if you like, and let Thomas know if you liked CloudPunk. Uh, we are here and we'll be working on a couple of next guests. I've got a couple of cool game developers in the works here, and I'll let you know as soon as I get those locked down. And folks, stay safe and be merry. See you next time.